Hi, this is Ted Kelly with Ted's Hospitality Minute. Hey, today we've got a super great guest on. His name is Chris Henry. He's with Majestic Hospitality. He's going to come on and tell us a little bit about their services, what they offer. But he's also going to tell us probably a little bit about how they've been faring during the pandemic and what challenges they've seen and what they're thinking about how things are going to be, say, for the next 12, 24 months. Hey, Chris, how are you? Doing well. Good morning. Thank you for uh, having me on. Oh, no. Thank you for giving us the time, man. I know it's probably a little early out in California time, so I got to say I appreciate you getting up early to help us uh, help us get this podcast put together. <laughs> no, it's it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not too early. The waking hour has passed and uh, getting the ball rolling. <laughs> All right. Well, let's start. Tell us a little bit about you. Majestic Hospitality and kind of how you got to, to where you are today. Sure. So, you know, my my story in hospitality goes back a long way. It's actually something I've been fascinated with as, as a, since I was a child. My parents actually owned and operated healthcare facilities, which I also joke today is not that much different than a hotel uh, because you have a lot of the same departments, except your guests stay a lot longer. Um, and sort of growing up around that started getting me interested and my family and I, we traveled a lot and I was very fortunate with having a neighbor, childhood neighbor who was an executive at Four Seasons. And, um, we, I got to be one of their guinea pigs before they opened hotels, my family and I. So we would get to travel and stay at pre, during pre-openings at different Four Seasons hotels. And that continued growing, um, ended up working at, for the company, uh, uh, sort of end of high school, getting a college. And then just kept going from there. My passion with hotels has never really stopped. I sometimes joke and ask myself if I were to do something different, what would I do? And I struggle to figure out a different answer because <laughs> um, it's all I've really ever been uh, fascinated with. Um, so started my company actually originally with a friend of mine from uh, college. And we actually originally started Majestic in our dorm room um, as a way to consult with smaller, it was rich originally mom and pop establishments that, um, you know, this is you know, early, uh, early 2000s, trying to sort of reinvent themselves for sort of a new world coming out of the, going into and out of the last recession. Um, and after college, you know, I ended up working for Prince Hotels, uh, which is a large Japanese uh, chain. I worked for their Hawaii portfolio. My business partner was working for uh, Ritz-Carlton um, because this was now 2010, 2011, when the recession was sort of just getting over with. And we got an opportunity in 20, 2011 to really sort of get Majestic going as our full-time gig, really start pushing and growing with clients. Um, and it's been a growth path since then. Um, and now 10 years later, I look back and I ask, what would I do differently? Or would I've, I've done more of the corporate role life kind of situation? And the answer is no, I've loved everything we've done because we've worked with amazing people. Uh, we've worked on fantastic projects and seen a lot of the world. Um, and we're very happy about what we do. What we, what's, you know, makes Majestic a little different is we really do specialize in, <clears throat> in boutique lifestyle and adventure tourism. And we don't really go too far out of that realm. Uh, we found that's a really good space for us. You know, there's a lot of people who can do, you know, extended stay or your conference hotels or normal business hotels. But our right. passion is really the resort sector and really the, the experiential destination sectors of the industry. Um, so us as a company, we're involved with, uh, with hotel and resort projects from very early on, usually site selection and feasibility phase 
been taking projects through uh, design and planning and then through construction and pre-opening. And that's usually where we bow out. Okay. Um, so our goal is, is twofold as a company. One is to be a, uh, either a consultancy firm where we're sort of like an, uh, um, advising clients on how to make the projects better, but then we also mm -hmm. act as, as a third party developer. So some of our clients are high net worth funds, right? Net worth individuals. And we actually run the day-to-day -day project on their behalf, okay. um, service owners, rep, project manager, right. uh, third party developer. So that's really what we do in a nutshell. We've been approached to do management, but to be honest, we haven't really looked at that. Definitely, we right. like the, we like the creative side of it right now. Right. Um, and just to give you a little recap of where we're active right now with projects, we have a hotel that's half built and should be ready by next summer in Cabo San Lucas. We have a project that's in early planning um, in Austin, Texas, on one of the lakes nearby. Uh, another project under construction in Houston. And we're just starting a new project in Aruba for a family resort. So we're, we're, we're busy coming out of, of COVID, thankfully. Um, so we just got to see and uh, if our projections for the next 12 months are going to be accurate. Awesome. Awesome. So, so I've got two questions I'm about to give you. Okay. Talk a little bit about the adventure tourism uh, segment that it sounds like you're playing it. It, it sounds really interesting. I just want to kind of cue that up a little bit better. Yeah. So adventure tourism, we, so I look at, I need to take a step back from that. I look at ecotourism in itself as being around uh, not just ecology, but also adventure, but then as well as cultural. And what we have seen is in our experience, and this was when we were really starting coming out of the last recession was emerging markets were really popular spots. And the easiest way for people to start developing in these new destinations is leveraging their ecology and culture. And then the adventure part starts to play into that because people for coming from abroad, this is their first foray into these market spaces. Right. And it's a new thing. And going to these new places where they don't know anybody else who's been there yet, that adds to the adventure to it. And what couples with this also is that myself and uh, some of my colleagues we're pretty avid backpackers. So we like to do adventure travel ourselves anyway. So through our own travels, we've been to a lot of amazing places that end up turning into opportunities to work with locals to help them start developing their own tourism programs. Oh, that is um, so nice. So, so it's twofold there, but we've done everything from uh, you know, scuba diving resorts to jungle lodges to um, uh, desert oases. We've done some really cool things and um, we're trying, we're looking now at, at some uh, adventure cruise line projects as well. So, oh, nice. uh, but it's one of those things is we do it for our own fun. So we're passionate about it and we want to be able <laughs> to share a lot of these things with, um, with other folks who may not have considered to go to these uh, places. So as long as it's fun, then it's not really work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the thing. I love what I do. And that's why I don't know what else I would do if I, if I had to start over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I just wanted to get that kind of cleared up in my brain because it sounded like it was some real interesting stuff uh, in terms of the adventure tourism piece. And I, and I like it. I like it. So, so talk a little bit about how COVID impacted the echo adventure tourism world that you guys play in. Yeah, so it's been it's been a double-edged sword. So domestically, um, COVID is probably one of the best things that ever could have happened to eco and adventure tourism because 
with, with COVID, it forced people to want to leave the city life. And if you actually look at the statistics of state and national parks, uh, 2020 um, what, and 2021, they've both been record years for attendance, yeah. um, almost to the point of almost over-tourism. But it reignited in people the opportunity and the desire to go out and see America's you know, great outdoors and wildlands and re-engage with their natural heritage. So in some ways, it's, it's been a boom, but it's not, we don't really, aren't really seeing it going to be tailing off as people are still looking for these new opportunities or adventures to go out and do outside of city right. life. Um, on the flip side, for our international clients and destinations we work with, it's been a bit of a disaster because they're so dependent on foreign tourists coming in. So with all the air corridors shut down, it's, it's been hard on them. Um, and we've been seeing a lot of markets, like I was just in Egypt looking at some projects. They never really shut down, but the tourists still aren't there because getting there isn't easy. Mm -hmm. um, same with down in Latin America. So we're, we're, we're seeing there's both sides to it. Um, my advice to people is, especially if they're, if they're abroad, now is the time, if you can afford to do it, do little renovation projects, do little enhancements, use this downtime to get your property ready to reopen. Because once those, those floodgates open, you're going to have people coming because they're so desperate to get out of their hometown and, and local areas. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That's a, um, that's a rule, I should say, a theory that we've been promoting for owners stateside as well during COVID was that, hey, if you've got the funds to renovate your property, what better time to do it? Because your occupancy levels are so low. There's an abundance of trade folks that are looking for, you know, opportunities to keep working and staying busy. And you probably can get, you know, 10 for 15% discount and be able to motor right through the project once you got the construction phase, because you really, you really have a free reign in the property. So it sounds like that same theory uh, works for the uh, abroad market as well, in terms of getting things ready for folks to come back and return to the property. Um, Absolutely. And it's actually really, been frustrating. More people didn't take advantage of, and I get people were worried about spending money, but um, from a logistics point of view, it was the best time um, to have done something. Well, let's talk a little bit about the boutique hotel areas and what's going on there with respects to your world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the boutique hotel is starting to become a very bland term, sadly, even though it was a very, it, it, it was a very cool term about 10 years ago, because the concept of what the boutique hotel is has really morphed um, depending on, on um, where you are in the world. If we're, if we're here in the U.S., we think of something sort of small and intimate, and in China, um, it would be something where it's under, you know, a thousand rooms and um, mm. still big buyer standards. So it's really changing. But what we're seeing happening in the boutique hotel space is that, you know, travelers say are still looking for experiential destinations, something that's unique, something that's special, something that's creative. Uh, consumers are moving that direction um, by desire over going with the big corporate brands, which is why you're starting to see the big brands creating their collections and, and uh, programs, because it gives these boutique hotels um, you know, a reservations platform. What we're seeing though, however, is that in some of this um, you know, amalgamation of boutique hotels, there's some of them are starting to lose their character because they are starting to get some of that corporate influence involved. Um, and I've been sent a few recently, and it's just like, 
it, this looks like any other branded hotel. So we're losing some of that creative steam to be able to fit in with a collection at uh, some of the bigger brands. And I know they wouldn't like me for saying that, but it is what we're seeing. So my big thing is, is that we got to remember, we need to design and build around what guests and consumers desires and wants are. And what people are calling and screaming for today is they want something that's authentic, something that's unique and something that's special. So when we work on boutique hotel projects, it's really about creating that story and that experience. And then we, again, and also with the consumer perspectives, and then we start designing and building around that. Um, I think for boutique hotels going forward, you can't just use that mentality of, if you build it, they will come. You really have to give people a reason uh, to come to your property. And it should be a little destination unto itself and not just, you know, heads and beds. So I think that's where we're seeing a little bit of a, of a shift in the boutique space is, is they started to get a little too corporate mentality wise. And we need to get some of that creativity and, and uniqueness injected back into that space. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause uh, to, to your point um, here in Greenville, South Carolina, they're actually building a big Kempton hotel that's supposed to be boutique. It's right there on the water, but I gotta say it's gotta be at least a few hundred rooms, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. I haven't been in it yet, but you know, it's, it looks really strange, but it's a nice, you know, uh, interesting, you know, attractive to make you want to go in and look like, hey, what's going on over there? But uh, I, I'm I'm waiting to see what that's gonna be like. But uh, you, yeah, you're definitely hitting the nail on the head with how they're kind of bringing the brand present and making it you know really more like the brand but uh we'll we'll, you know, we'll see it's funny we're doing a project um our project in aruba right now and we've been talking with a, a company i can't disclose who but a company in the entertainment space that has a lot of ip to potentially do a new sort of brand family brand concept and um, I guess they had just tried to do, spent three years trying to negotiate a way of working with one of the big brands. Um, and the big brand so wanted to heavily over standardize and over um, essentially put their book down as far as what our, or what our design ethos are and stuff that the entertainment company is like, that's not what we're going for. We're, you know, we want each property to be a little different, a little quirky. Right. Um, big brand just couldn't get their head around it. So I think that there's this disconnect that, you know, over standardization, um, fine for a business hotel, but for a leisure and, and consumers who want that, that special, uh, trip, it just doesn't work as well in today's market space. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see. Um, cause I think that's one of the first, what I would really call big boutique hotels here in the Greenville area. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, what that's like uh, when they get it all done. Um, it, it's really in a nice location. I do like where it's placed. It is downtown. So we'll see what happens with that. So let me ask you this question, Chris. Are you guys in your projects that you have going abroad and possibly stateside, are you guys impacted by the workforce availability, the the job situation and, and things of that nature? You know, there was a period for us on the development side where we were seeing a shortage last year as, you know, as lockdown came into play, a lot of, tr of trade workers left um, back home to say. So the big cities, especially like here in LA and we had a product up in San Francisco at the time, we lost a lot of tradesmen. They, they just up and left and went back home to wherever they're from. 
So that had a knock-on effect for us on construction prices, um, not to mention, you know, there's significant rise in raw material costs. What we're seeing now for a lot of clients, we don't do a lot of management consulting, um, but what we are doing right now is we've had a lot of clients reaching out to us where they're trying to find talent to come and work for them. Um, usually mid-management level talent is what we get, have been getting some calls for recently or some top management. Um, and it's hard to find people. But what I'm hearing from everybody else at the moment um, is that finding uh, entry-level or line-level employees is part of my language, but damn near impossible. Um, but being as a younger person, I always have a lot of friends who work in the industry and work in, in other industries. So I hear a lot of the millennial, you know, gen, you know, Y, Gen Z uh, perspectives. And there's a lot of um, growing dissatisfaction, um, especially in the hospitality space with career opportunities, with uh, pay, with benefits. And um, it's certainly becoming more challenging. So we need to, as an industry, sort of take a step back and holistic look at what do we need to, to do to make hospitality interesting again from, a, from a, an employer's perspective? How do we want to bring people in? How do we want to treat our team members, our family? Um, and I think there's a little bit of an awakening coming um, sooner than later on general job dissatisfaction in the U.S., um, but yeah. hospitality is going to bear the brunt of it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I, to your point, I think that uh, a lot of the millennials are not necessarily attracted to pay. You know, <laughs> you know, it's it's there's the old saying that, um, you know, one half, you know, one half of, or I guess everybody else in the world, um, you know, they work to live. And in the U.S., we have the opposite mentality is that we live to work. And I think <laughs> the the young, us, us younger folks in generation are trying to make that change is yeah. we want the same benefits and quality of life as our colleagues and friends in Europe yeah. um, or in Canada um, or other developed nations where you know, there is living wages, there are good healthcare benefits, there are reasonable amounts of time off. Yeah. Um, and I think you're going to start seeing a lot of pushback more and more for that. And if we take a look at the, the labor statistic numbers that came out a few days ago, um, you had 4 million people quit their jobs last month to look for new opportunities. And that speaks a lot. Um, I see people, and again, I'm, I'm not a fan of unions or anything like that. I'm not a, right. a lefty, but I think the writing's on the wall that there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there. Right. Um, so I, I think we need to stop and ask, you know, are we paying or, you know, paying our a, employees enough? Are we giving them reasonable schedules? Right. Are we giving them reasonable time off? And are we giving them benefits and healthcare? I just had my, as I mentioned to you this morning, my back surgery. Um, and, you know, even though with my, you know, great platinum insurance plan here in California, it still cost <laughs> me like $12,000 out of pocket on top of what my insurance covered. Wow. So I can, I can fortunately afford it, but I know a lot of people who are line level and couldn't have afforded it. Right. Um, right. So there's, there's gotta be an awakening somewhere. And unfortunately, again, yeah, I think hospitality is the bearer of the brunt because we terminated so many people last year. Yeah. Um, and didn't take advantage probably enough of the PPP programs to keep people on board um, right. for furlough. 
that now to attract new talent, you've got to put out a better offering than what you had pre-COVID. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the conundrum. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and you know, as you think about it, I should say, as I think about it, if you think about pay, um, vacation, medical benefits, maybe some other perks. I'm just curious, which of those four would be if you ask millennials, right? Which which one's most important to them? Is it is it time off, the flexibility of schedule? Is it the medical benefit? Is it more vacation? I think. I can't. I mean, obviously, I think the money is the easiest one, but at the same time, I'm a big believer that money doesn't solve all problems. Right. Um, and I think the 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 other bigger factor of this is is mental health, and I think our my generation is being a little bit more proactive on trying to have that work life balance. Yeah. So I think of that of all things could be factored into the equation to have a healthy work-life balance. I think the pay part of it will actually work itself out. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think companies today aren't quite, especially older corporations aren't quite used to a work-life balance. They're used to, you know, uh, everybody doing the grind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's, I think if, if companies can stop and focus on the work-life balance part, I do sincerely so think the compensation part will sort itself out much more easily um, yeah. than what otherwise. And we need to be a little bit more aggressive, I think, especially in metropolitan areas um, with inflation going on right now, um, right. housing prices going back up. Um, we need to have some adjustments, I think, in there. Like if you're working in LA, San Francisco, New York, et cetera, you know, you're paid a little bit higher than if you're working in, you know, somewhere in the South or Midwest where the cost of living is significantly lower. Um, that needs to factor into, because I know a lot of folks who are moving out of California, for example, because the cost of living's too damn high. Um, a lot of the corporations are. The tax, the taxation rate or something had to have a move into Texas, I think is where they're going. A lot of them. And I, and I don't blame them. I mean, employment taxes here are high. Um, income tax and sales tax are high. Uh, California is not an easy place to do business anymore. And that's a whole different conversation. Right, but, right. Uh, we have a lot of problems. But um, I think in general, the people living in metropolitan areas are, are probably the ones who are going to struggle the most um, with, with this challenge than people who are more rural, suburban areas. Yeah, you're you're right. We could probably uh, we could probably uh, go down that road and and uh, still be here tomorrow sometime talking about the the taxation yep. thing. So so I won't I won't do that. But let me let me ask you this question, Chris. Who who would be your ideal client for you? That's a great question. So I have two types of ideal clients. We love working with um, investment funds where. They're bringing us on really to be more the third-party developer for them. Um, that's really our ideal kind of project. And we have some great clients who are in that space that, that work with right. us. And our other ideal client is working with usually high net worth individuals or um, visionaries who they have great hotel ideas, but they need somebody to come in and be that owner's rep project manager to really help them bring their vision to reality. Yeah. Um, those are other really key kind of clients because we like working on some of these, you know, more unique eccentric kind of projects. Right. Um, so we can be the, the heavy lifters and help bring, help bring their vision to a reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, so yeah, that's really, we, uh, yeah, we play in that third party project management space, but it's really more kind of like the 
plain vanilla wrapper kind of stuff, the brand, you know, kind of courtyard, the hilt and stuff like that. But you you sound like you're playing a way more creative space and and uh <laughs> we, I, I, that was one of the things like when we really started getting going um, as a company uh, during the last, the 08 era recession, um, we learned we had to be really flexible and nimble to survive, Right. Um, which is actually how, to be honest, we survived the COVID um, crisis last year is we, we already, we grew up in that mindset in the 08 recession. Like we had knew how to be flexible, nimble, how to shut, you know, things off and, get the company. So last year wasn't too bad for us. Um, we survived okay. But what we found was, is that our niche of dealing with um, uh, these boutique lifestyle and ecotourism projects, we can do those pretty much anywhere in the world, depending on what economy is doing well or what, you know, what's struggling. So we're very nimble and dynamic in that way. Right. Um, but what the thing I love about it is it gives us a lot more creativity when we're working overseas because we then get to interface with governments usually who want tourism to be developed in their areas. So we don't get quite as much pushback as some stuff in the States. Right. Um, and it becomes a really sort of fun game of, yeah. of putting, this, putting a project together. So we have all the respect in the world for people who, who do the big corporate hotels or the limited service. Right. It just, we chose to get into something different and, um, you know, it's, we've been having a hell of a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> and I, and I like that. So what's your, uh, what's your forecast when you think the COVID pandemic thing is going to kind of maybe fizzle out and things in the U S will kind of pick back up to, to where they need to be. Do you think it's 2022, 2023 or any thoughts on it? I think realistically to get back to a sense of quote unquote normal, like pre COVID normal, I, I, with what I'm seeing, I don't think it's going to be probably until late 2022, early 2023. Yeah. Um, I think we're still going to see on the biggest thing, it's going to be supply chain issues. Um, I do not see that evaporating anytime soon. Yeah. Um, you know, we're with our project in Cabo, we're doing a big entertainment space and for even getting like entertainment equipment because of the microchip shortage has been a nightmare. Um, so I think things like that, there's gonna be a lot of knock-on effects. I hope right. though on the social side and um, on the on the health and welfare side, I'm really hoping that caseloads and case numbers stay down through this winter. And if they do, I think um, we will see a sort of a newer uh, a new interpretation of what normal is. And but life will get mostly back by I'd say mid next year, second okay. second late second early third quarter. Right. Um, but I, I'm more worried now about the economic knock-on effects um, of, of the supply chain because, you know, thankfully raw material prices are coming back down, but it really did hamper us on new projects. Right. Um, so that, so my forecast is econ economically, I think we've got another year at least of, of this craziness, but socially right. healthcare wise, I'm hoping it's not more than another, you know, six months of, of, of what we've been going through. Um, okay. but like everybody else taking it one day at a time, everybody, everybody's got a crystal ball. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Chris, it's so great to have you on. Hey, tell our uh, viewers how they can find you if they want to try to talk to you about, uh, soliciting your services. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, best way is to a, go to our website, which is majestic hospitality.com. 
Um, and there you can click and submit inquiries and uh, reach out to our team members. So that's the easiest and quickest way. Um, otherwise, you can find us on LinkedIn, my LinkedIn profile, just Christopher Henry, um, ISHC um, is up there and um, feel free to shoot me a message there as well. So that's the best way. All right. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time again, Chris. Uh, we appreciate having Absolutely. you on. Absolutely. Thank you for the uh, invitation. All right. This has been another Ted's Hospitality Minute. Thanks so much for viewing and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.